Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Chit Heads. My guest today is Philip Goldberg. Philip has been studying the world's spiritual traditions for more than 45 years. He is the author or co-author of some 25 books published in more than a dozen languages. His book, American Veda, was named by Huffington Post and Library Journal as one of the top 10 religion books of 2010. It was followed in 2018 by the popular biography, The Life of Yogananda. He blogs on spirituality and health and co-hosts the Spirit Matters podcast. He also recently published the book, Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times. And we talk about a number of topics from that book today. I hope you enjoy the episode. All right. Well, um, so, Phil, it's been four years, uh, I think, really? since we did wow. our last episode. Yeah, I was just looking at the, the, the number, and it was episode 17 that we talked um, last time. And now we're at episode 120. Wow, so, getting up there, man. Getting up there, yeah. This When you keep doing it, the numbers just keep going up, I suppose. Um, but we had a great conversation before. But, of course, a lot has happened since then. You've you've written two books. Um, uh, well, maybe you've written more than Is it two books you've written? You wrote the one in 2018 on Yogananda. And oh, then, right. So when I was on last time, it wasn't about Yogananda. It was, uh, okay. Yeah, we were, it was 2016 that we did the interview. And I think oh, I was, okay. we, we talked about spiritual pragmatism. We talked about appropriation. And then we talked about yes, yes, topics yes. related to what you'd written in an American right. Veda, which of course had been, you know, published for quite some time by then. But um, we right. talked about that. So, um, yeah, so I want to cover a little bit of, 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 the, of the content of those two books, but talk right. mostly about your most recent book, which is, of yeah. course, incredibly timely, <laughs> uh, called Spiritual uh, Spiritual Practice for um, Crazy Times. I mean, it doesn't get... Uh, it doesn't get crazier. <laughs> and you wrote it before COVID came out. Am I right? Yes. So, and that, that's the fun part, that people keep saying, oh, what great timing. You're, you're brilliant. You know, like I, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it seems like you kind of saw it coming. Maybe your, the meditation practice, the spiritual practice that you're teaching in that book led you to uh, cultivate maybe. some cities. <laughs> yeah, I, I, was pres, I was prescient. Yes, absolutely. I, I've, I've been joking with everybody that... Uh, uh, it's the first time I ever had a book that was on t- that was timely. I've I've usually been ahead or behind the time. <laughs> well, yeah, you've definitely focused on you know historical moments and historical figures, and and um, and I'm actually interested in kind of what inspired you to 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 switch uh, tracks and focus on a practice book. But before we get there, why don't you just tell us a little bit about you know what's happened over the last four years and and um, and what you've been up to, and and then let's talk a little bit about Yogananda. Well, uh, four years. Um, the early part of that phase, I believe, if if I'm, my timing is right, I was probably already at the early stages of researching the Yogananda biography. Yeah, I think you were speaking uh, about it in the in that episode as well. You mentioned it was possibly. on. Yeah. And then it came out in 2018, um, and that was that was a, a remarkable uh, adventure mm. to to dig deep into the life of uh, an important figure like him and, and one who's, you know, inspired you know, millions of people in their, in their uh, spiritual paths and uh, have been read, you know, his autobiography of a yogi has been read by millions of people. Yeah. 
He inspired me. I first read Autobiography of a Yogi in 1970. Uh, and I've, you know, when I interviewed people for American Veda, everybody, you know, would say, not everybody, but uh, his autobiography was the most often mentioned book when people talk about what introduced them to their spiritual path. Absolutely. And, and that goes for, you know, most of those people were not disciples of his. They're not, they didn't become devotees or, you know, in any uh, devoted way, but they were inspired by him and his books. And I'm one of those people. Yeah. And uh, so, but it was fascinating to dig into it and um, uh, uncover things that were not, in his own writing. Uh, a lot is left out of Autobiography of a Yogi. I know most of your listeners are familiar with the book, most probably have read it, but he leaves out a lot about his life, especially his life after he came to America, where he spent the last you know, 30 plus years of his life and where he became famous and did all his work. Um, but and he leaves out a lot. So I had I filled in the gaps and it was fascinating to dig in. And I have to say, now to segue to the new book, uh, when I was working on spiritual practice for crazy times, um, I, I was inspired to some degree by what I learned researching Yogananda's life. Mm. And, uh, you know, that, that's a subtle thing. But um, last year sometime in like the spring of, of uh, early spring of 2019, um, I started to notice people were very uh, afraid and angry and worried and yeah. preoccupied and overwhelmed uh, as, as many of us have been in the uh, Trump era. And, um, I noticed people saying they were neglecting their spiritual practices or, you know, they had no interest in that. They were just too overwhelmed. They were too stressed out or they were too busy trying, you know, in, engaging in social activism or whatever it was. And I said, no, this is the time we need this most. Yeah. This is the time we most need to meditate. This is the time we most need whatever, you know, sustains our spirit on a regular basis. So I wrote an article about it and that got some attention and my publisher, Hay House, who had published the Yogananda book, we'd been talking about what I want to do next. And, and I said, you know, I'm not doing another three year research project. I want to do something practical and, you know, that I can do fairly, you know, quickly. And I said, they said, well, maybe there's a book in that article you wrote. And we thought about it, and I did, and I, you know, I realized it was it was needed. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, we went through all the editing and rewriting and everything, and um, I, it was, the galley proofs were being uh, proofread while I was on a, leading a tour in India in January and February of this year. And I came back just to look over the, the final uh, galleys before they went into production. And then COVID, the, the lockdown happened. <laughs> and, now, and now it's out. It came out in August. We rushed out the e-book 
you know, for Kindle and the other platforms back in April. So because we feel it's, it's a contribution, it's, a, it's something that benefits people in this era, and especially when the lockdown hit and things got far crazier than we could possibly have uh, anticipated. Um, we rushed it out and they, and they charged only $1.99 for the ebook version. And then the paperback and the um, audiobook came out in August, but we kept the uh, ebook at $1.99. And now everybody's telling me what incredible timing I have and how brilliant I am for bringing out a book in the middle of the pandemic when it's so important. And of course, when I wrote it, no one had any idea. Times were crazy enough. I know. It's our, it's our, it's our, you know, just even thinking about that and how much crazier it's gotten. It's, I mean, we look back almost nostalgically now to eight months ago when life was <laughs> so <Yeah>. serene <laughs> um, yeah. by comparison. I mean, it just is absolutely insane. Um, yeah, I mean, it resonates, you know, I love what you're mentioning about how we kind of, especially when, when, you know, the proverbial shit hits the fan our immediate go-to rather than to recognize that our spiritual practices can really ground us is to kind of see them as a secondary um, thing. You know, they're, I'll, yeah, I'll get to that after I handle this, whoops, after I handle the serious work of, of social action in the world. And, and so there is this kind of, um, distinction that a lot of people have in their minds of of their kind of externalized action in the world versus their spiritual practice. Can you talk a little bit about how we can see these two things as actually um, yeah. co-sustaining one another? Yes, and I want to add another factor, or maybe we can come back to it. But the two things I heard most from spiritual people, um, or people who like, Oh, yes, uh, here, uh, meditation is good for me, but I don't have time for that now. I'm, I'm, I'm too busy. Or people on spiritual, or people would say, I am just too agitated now. I can't, I can't you know, do these things that calm you down. Uh, and, and, and no, that's why you do them. You do them to calm down. It's not like, you, you, it, it's like saying you're too dirty to shower. <laughs> it's it's not like that. I'm too sick to go see the doctor. Um, and no, it's it's. But and the other thing is, no, I, I'm either too busy, you know, I'm raising my kids, I've got my career, or I'm too busy with social activism. And that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. And this goes back for me a very long time, because I was, you know, a, a, an anti-religious you know, Marxist, radical kid in the 60s, trying to end the war and doing civil rights work. And I, you know, all the, you know, religion and all this stuff was the opium of the people. And then when I got on my own path and, you know, realized, you know, my, my life was a mess um, and my searching, you know, led me to the uh, spiritual teachings of India um, that's when I realized, and well, I shouldn't say realized, I, I learned, I was taught that spiritual practice is a, an, a platform for more effective action. It's not an escape mechanism. It's not a luxury that, you know, I'll do when I'm, you know, 85 years old and retired. It's not uh, something that you, you know, you just do. Uh, to, to, to tune out the world and, and 
leave it behind. It's also a platform for action. So there's a, a verse in the Bhagavad Gita that has always stayed with me. It hit me very hard when I first read it, and it's sort of been a guiding light. And, and the translation is, established in yoga, perform action. Mm-hmm. So it's a two-step, I call it the spiritual two-step. As you go within, you, you experience the inner state of unity. Uh, you, you go into the sanctuary of peace that we all have within us. And it's healing. It's a refuge. It's self-protection. It's a, a temporary uh, tuning out so you can tune in to you know, your own inner wisdom, your own best self, mm. true self. But then you come out. You know, we're human beings. We have lives. You know, we have responsibilities. And by doing spiritual practice first and then acting, your actions are more effective. You have a clearer mind. You make better decisions. You, your intuition is sharper. Uh, you, you're coming from a, 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 an expanded heart uh, and a deeper uh, sense of perception of the world. I, I saw that happening to me just, you know, as a personal experiment, verifi- verification of that back when I was a young seeker. And, uh, it, you know, it's been verified in my life and others over and over again. And when people tell me, you know, they think spirituality is incompatible with social action, in social justice world, I always say, yeah, well, tell that to Mahatma Gandhi. Tell that to Martin Luther King. These were deeply spiritual people. Tell it to Jesus, you know. know. If you can get a hold of him. (laughs) Yeah, right. I mean, you know, these were deeply spiritual people who were driven into very effective action to make the world better. Yeah. I mean, Buddha had his enlightenment. He didn't stay under the tree. He came out and did what he was called to do to help other people. And and this spirit of uh, acting from a deep spiritual place to serve is, you know, you find that in every spiritual tradition. There are very few, you know, hermits. You know, there are monks and nuns. But the overwhelming majority of them do service work in the world. And so I always tell my activist friends, you know, you'll, you'll do it better. You'll do your work better. If you protect yourself, you also won't burn out and, and get overwhelmed as easily. But you'll also, you know, make smarter decisions. You know, I'm, I'm a, a sports fan. And when I was young... Uh, an athlete and I always wanted to be the the athletes I admired the most the ones who when the when the pressure's on when the game is on the line they're the ones who take charge they're the ones who they're not only good at what they do but they don't lose their cool Mm -hmm. they stay centered they stay stable they keep their wits about them when when you know pressures on I always wanted to be that guy and I wasn't but when I watch a basketball game or something those are the ones we admire but that the same thing is true of 
you know, soldiers and business executives and, you know, parents and, you know, uh, politicians, social activists, when the pressure's on you and the, and the, uh, there's a lot at stake, you want to be centered. You want to have a, a calm place. You want to have what the Gita calls equanimity. Yeah. You know, well, so it's it's interesting all of those um, you know examples that you mentioned, especially you know athletes and 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 whatnot, is is that all of those figures you know all of these athletes didn't just show up to the game without having some kind of prior preparation. They forged themselves in the fire of practice, you know, and um, and beautiful. That's right. And I and I really liked what you pointed out in the book about I had never heard this before about something that um, Gandhi had said that. Um, <laughs> which it brings to the point of, you know, I have so many things to do. They said, I have so many things to do today. I'll meditate two hours instead of one, you yeah. know, which really flips it on the head and makes you think. And, and I think anybody who's engages in deep spiritual practice realizes that actually you discover more time. It's really quite miraculous. I mean, time is just not linear in that way. And maybe it just happens. You discover more time because you become more effective at, at, you know, at engaging in the time outside meditation. Um, so, yeah, I just thought that was a, a really yeah. beautiful observation. Yeah, I have a whole chapter in the book because this is, you know, I've been hearing this for 50 years. Oh, I don't have the time. You know, the time as if it were a, a, a spiritual practice were a luxury. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then when people look at how they spend their time, especially these days, how much time we waste so much time. Yeah. That you, you, once you see the effectiveness of a good spiritual practice, or maybe practices, yeah. if you have a, a you know a, a inventory of them, then you realize they're they're not luxuries, they're not add-ons, they're investments, they're investments of time for like regular maintenance, like you invest a few minutes to brush your teeth. You invest time to prepare your meals and eat properly. We're, most of us are used to making time for exercise because we know it's good for us. It's good for yeah. our bodies. Well, some of us discover that spiritual practices are also good for our bodies, but also for our minds and our souls and our spirits and their investments. And I learned early on, after I was meditating a while, it was like something would happen and I wouldn't meditate that day and I would feel the difference. Mm. It's like when you feel like, you know, I haven't showered. <laughs> <laughs> you know, something's missing here. I haven't gotten enough sleep. I haven't eaten right. You feel it. And, and you know that this is, becomes a necessity, an important investment of time. But you have to manage your time well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just fit that in and we can always fit in 15 20 minutes you know just do spend a little less time uh on this on the smartphone yeah well you have a good recommendation in the book maybe you want to share it of of kind of combing through your if you are one of these people and, and it, you know it's a legitimate feeling um that we don't have time um whether or not it's true so what what would you recommend for those individuals who want to find the time and want to kind of realize that they do how can they go about you know carving out some time in their day two things do spiritual practice long enough to to see the benefits 
because then the motivation kicks in. You know, yeah. this this is good for me. This works. I have to find the time for it. And um, and that and sometimes people you know say, okay, I'll try this, but they don't necessarily try a, a good a effective practice long enough to see the the real benefits. Um, and um, the second thing is take a look at how you spend your time. I know people, business people, who you know teach seminars in time management. Mm-hmm. You know, people's use of time is a big deal, and they have people, you know, sort of uh, have, uh, keep an inventory, keep a, a log of everything they do and how much time they spend on it. And if you do that for a week and then look back on it, you realize how much is wasted. Yeah. How much you, you didn't need to to do that. It happened to me the other day, and and this is a larger topic of uh, being overwhelmed by the news oh my God. And, yeah. and the bombardment of the media. But it also is about the, the use of time. I I found myself the other day getting really angry at something on the news, as is easy to do these days, <laughs> and, and and then I. I realized afterward that's the third time that day I got angry at the same news because you know it was re- it was repeated on on the cable channels and I said I didn't need to watch it the third time or the second time once was enough it was a waste of time and and you realize there are things that you know and some a little waste of time is a great thing you know we need to be idle we need to just goof off or whatever not everything has to be productive but there are things that you know we don't really need to do and and you can find a, a, you know 15 20 minutes half an hour to do it even if so you go to sleep a little early you wake up early and um you know, fit in your practice first thing in the morning. It's not that hard to do. You prepare the breakfast the night before. You know, there's little ways to rearrange the time. If you live with other people, you can mutually help each other in those ways. Mm. It, 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 it's something, uh, you know, I and people, people, and I have to be honest, people say to me, oh, it's easy for you to say you don't have kids. You're a self-employed writer. You don't you don't go out. You know you're not on a commute every day, and and I, I say yes, but I I have taught meditation to you know people who are parents and who commute and who have high pressure jobs. They find the time if they value it. You find yeah. the time for what you value, even if it means you do it on the commuter train, or you 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 shut out. The, uh, you know, the, the, you don't take any calls for 20 minutes in your office and, you know, shut exactly. off your phone and, and do it. There's ways to do it. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one of the things that you point out in, in the book is that, you know, the 1960s were arguably worse than now with assassinations and carnage and, you know, death in um, the Vietnam War. Um, but, you know, the message seems to be the going kind of narrative is that, you know, this is the, we're living in the worst of times and it's just getting worse. Um, so, you know, what's the fine line between actually recognizing 
that things are not great such that I am motivated to do something to change things versus falling victim to this um, this kind of overwhelming narrative of things are, you know, you know, going to hell essentially. And, and, and what that belief essentially does to our nervous system when we allow it to kind of take yeah. over. Well, you know, there's a lot of research that shows that optimistic people are healthier and live longer and, you know, happier. So a certain amount of optimism is good, but it's, it's not something you can fake. Yeah. You know, it's something, I, I mean, you could shift and try to be optimistic, but, you know, tr truly being optimistic is having a sense that things can work out and maybe I can contribute to it. That, that, that feeds a sense of optimism. It's bleak out there. This is a dark time. And, and you know, we're, we're uh, recording this in early October of 2020. Yeah, so it might be even uh, worse in a month. <laughs> yeah, coming come, come December and January when people, you know, aren't with their loved ones for Thanksgiving and, and, and Christmas and the weather is cold and people, you know, we're more vulnerable and we can't eat in a cafe so easily, you know, it, it, it's, it, it could get even bleaker and depending on the outcome of the election, it could be totally insane. Yeah. That's all true. Your comparison to the sixties is also true that things were crazy then. Uh, and the, I'm old enough to remember it. And I, I can, you know, I'd, I would not like to make a comparison between which is crazier. Yeah. They're, each was crazy in their own way. Each was dangerous in its own way. But we came through the 60s. And, uh, you know, people who were a lot older than I am were probably not alive anymore will tell you that the Great Depression and World War II, they were pretty crazy. And they were very difficult. And, and things were incredibly dark. And but we come through it. And um, I said earlier that my uh, working on the Yogananda book influenced writing spiritual practice for crazy times. Mm -hmm. One of the things that impressed me about Yogananda was that he was a deeply spiritual man. Obviously, he was a monk. There was a part of him that always wanted to just go back to India and, you know, live in a cave or an ashram and be with the, in, in his oneness of yoga with the divine. And um, but he had a mission and he was given this mission. He took it seriously. And, and so he he always came back to, you know, rejuvenated that uh, that uh, will to go on. And he went through very difficult times, and he worked very hard. Spiritual practice was the cornerstone of his life and what he made the cornerstone of all his students' lives. But doing work in the world and doing it well, fulfilling your, your dharma, uh, doing your, living up to your responsibilities was also important because we are human incarnations. We're we're people, humans, men and women. And so uh, he lived a very responsible life as the head of an organization and as a teacher responsible for students' well-being. And he, he did it through the Depression, mm. through World War II, 
They were struggling for money all the time. They barely survived. Uh, he was a victim of racism and bigotry and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And he spoke out. He spoke out on, you know, about the world. He was well-informed and he, and he used whatever platform he had to speak out of, against injustices in support of Gandhi and the you know, independence movement of India at some risk. And so I admired that and I saw, well, there's a model of a, of a modern uh, spiritual leader uh, who was also engaged in the world, even though he knew the world, everything was transient and, you know, in a certain way, illusory. It was still the play that we're in, mm -hmm. you know, all the world's a play and we're the actors and we have to play our parts well. And so we, and, you know, I, the last chapter in the book is called, is about uh, sacred citizenship and uh, being a responsible uh person in the world, that being a spiritual person uh, doesn't um, excuse you from the responsibilities that you take on, whether it's, you know, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your community, or in the larger landscape of, you know, being a citizen of the United States or wherever listeners are, uh, to, to do whatever we can, not just, in, you know, in spite of being spiritual people, but because we're spiritual people, presumably you are cultivating uh, through your spiritual evolution a greater capacity to love, a greater capacity for compassion and empathy. Why not use that? Make a contribution. Whatever it is, however small, not everybody is you know, going to be you know, on the front lines of protest. Not everybody's going to devote them you know, the bulk of their time to activism. It's not for everybody. Not everybody's going to run for office or, you know, work in a political campaign or whatever. Mm -hmm. But just, you know, make you know, helping people in need is, you know, valuable contribution. I'm, you know, I'm sending letters to people in swing states through um, uh, an organization to get out the vote. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I spend some time writing letters and putting stamps on and bringing them to the post office. It's my way of contributing to the political landscape. Yeah. Um, I use whatever platform I have on social media. And, you know, whatever it is, I, I got a – in the early weeks of the lockdown, the first week, I got a phone call from a new neighbor who is much younger than I am. And he thought, oh – Phil and his wife, you know, they're, they're older. They Maybe they need some help with grocery shopping. You know, I thought that was, I didn't, but that was a beautiful gesture. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's that kind of goodwill and um, uh, qu those qualities of the heart that, you know, can, they make a contribution in some way. And I think we're all... We're called at this moment, you know, to do something to make the world a better place. You're doing these podcasts. I don't know what else you do, but these podcasts are a service. They 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 serve somebody. I have a podcast. Yeah, it, it's free. We don't make any money, but there we are. Now the last interview, for example, was with Robert Thurman, the you know the Tibetan Buddhist uh, mm -hmm. teacher. 
And, you know, I saw, I just saw on Facebook, you know, a lot of people have now listened to that. That will help them in their lives. Yeah. And so I feel like I've made a contribution. Whatever we do, you know, will help. Yeah, I agree. I love that idea of sacred citizenship. I've, I actually am hoping at some point to do kind of an online conference, perhaps I'll, um, you can come participate and, and essentially kind of connecting, you know, who, what's the guy I interviewed him as well, who does the whole idea, the whole talks about sacred activism. Um, Andrew Harvey. Andrew Harvey. Yeah. And there's several other um, uh, spiritual teachers who just have really beautiful kind of contributions to make on on what it is to be kind of a citizen that are, is motivated by spiritual principles, um, you know, without projecting our own spiritual traditions onto everyone else, right? There's always a fine line in that because it seems to me, and perhaps you agree that 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 there is just a disintegration of of the idea of citizenship in our culture. I mean, like just the whole thing around masks and how much so many people are rejecting what just you know, at the very basis to me, it just seems like a gesture of, you know, not, you know, wanting to reduce harm and, and, and doing it for our fellow citizens who may be more vulnerable than we are. You know, maybe it's not going to stop the virus. Everyone's like, oh, it's, it doesn't work, but it's like, it's, it's a gesture that might, you know, reduce to, even if it's to a small degree, the spread uh, of the virus. And, and so, you know, it seems like that, that the whole drama around that seems to point to this incredible loss of the very notion of citizenship uh, in our culture. And I'm just wondering what you think kind of the causes of that are and, um, and you know, and perhaps from the perspective of your book, how we can get, um, you know, to a better place. Well, I, I, I certainly agree with you. It's, it's not only... Um, this, this anti-mask thing is not only uh, supremely selfish, yeah, but it's supremely foolish because you're, these people are making themselves more vulnerable. And it's just an anti-science thing that seems to spring from some mistrust of what they think of as the elite yeah. that, you know— it, it, and, and I, I, I don't understand it entirely— but I know part of it must be this ethic of rugged individuality, this myth of rugged individuality that Americans are prone to that say, you know, if we all just follow our self-interest, everything will be great. And you can't tell me what to do. And, you know, uh, don't tread on me. It's an anti-government, anti-institutional um, every man for himself, every woman for herself uh, attitude, that's toxic. I mean, American individuality and the honoring of individual freedom and everything is one of the glories of the modern world. And, you know, it, 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 it was the evolution out of feudalism and, you know, class-based societies and autocracy. But like other things, if you take it too far, you get into trouble. So yeah. now we have this sh shark-infested world of everybody out for themselves without a sense of civic responsibility. But what's interesting is you take these angry people who say, you can't tell me to wear a mask, in the context of their homes and their families, 
they're, they're probably responsible people. Mm-hmm. But what they define as being part of themselves is very narrow. It's yeah. like me and my family. Yeah. I mean, some of these, these angry guys yelling, don't you, know, I'm not wearing a mask, you can't make me. They, they lay down their lives to protect their wives and children or maybe even their you know, uh, extended family. Yeah. So they're not without responsibility in the most cases. It's just the sense of kinship to yes. a larger community is somehow lost. And I, and I can't help but think that part of it is uh, it's built in, a, in, in, in racism. Yeah. You know, that it, because it's, it's like, oh, you know, this virus is only affecting, you know, people of color in the in the poor communities and i why should i sacrifice for them i i don't know if that's conscious but you know i think that that could be part of it and it's it's toxic and it's crazy and i always want to say what wearing a mask and and not and you know not being able to you know go to a bar is is that asking a lot i mean people went through the depression and fought in wars and this is what you think is a too big a sacrifice yeah it putting on a mask i i mean you can even take it off when there's no one around it's not like you have to wear it all the time it's just when you're in with you know close to other people it's not that big a deal. I know. <laughs> it's like I before the before the lockdown and everything, the pandemic started to spread in Asia when I was in India, and we were worried, you know, about uh, getting home and you know having to change airports and places, uh, change planes in places. And I was changing my planes in Singapore, and we didn't know, you know, what was going to happen. But everybody wore a mask just as self-protection because we, you know, we were going into airports and on planes. We, we all had masks because just because the streets of India are so polluted. Yeah. It's not that big a deal. You just put on a mask. It's, yeah. It's, it, but it's this. Uh, yeah, it becomes a, sim- a, sim- a symbol. You describe, you really like um, unpacked it really well. I think that this, <laughs> I love the way that you're just talking about the 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 manner in which um, kind of the orbit of compassion that is available to people gets it shrinks around, you know, fr- friends, family, immediate kind of community, and and so I wonder if this is just a, a something that is happening all over the world is this kind of contraction into forms of, you know, well, we might say nationalism, but it's really more than that because it's these smaller communities. It's my party. It's, you know, my conservative friends and, and relations or my liberal friends and relations. And, and, you know, it's just this, it's this increasing tribal kind of mentality that is just backward. (laughs) It's, it's tribal and, uh, and, and, that sense of tribalism is a sign of being locked in a very limited state of consciousness. Yeah. Where you don't, you feel connected only to a limited circle. And when things are tough, tribalism seems to, you know, become more intense. 
it's like circle the wagons and my experiences and you know this people who know a lot more than I do have you know encouraged this way of thinking that one of the things that happens when you're on a spiritual path is you your the deep sense of connectedness grows yeah it's not an intellectual thing it's not like you know you read a book about you know ecology and you realize we're all connected and you realize everything affects everybody else and the the, you know butterfly flaps its wings in south america and you know and everything everything's connected that's an insight that's important to keep in mind we are all connected but there's something about the expansion of consciousness and the uh, the opening of the heart that comes with deep spiritual practice over time that you really you feel the connection in a deep way and you feel the connection to other people who are not your blood relatives who are not your kin who are not your you know extended family you feel a kinship you feel a connectedness to people who are different from you in ways that maybe you you didn't sense or feel before yeah and 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 that and then you also you know with deep spiritual practice you you come to a place where um, a sense of oneness comes about so that you realize that what you are in your essence everything else is everyone else is and so you're not just connected to other people you are those other people in a certain way yeah. and that's that's a hard thing to grasp but it, it you, it's a felt sense yeah that um and you begin to love the diversity and uh, respect it and appreciate it because it they're all just manifestations of the same divinity and so just like you can you know, go to a garden and see, enjoy all the beautiful variety of flowers and knowing they're all just, you know, these, the glory of nature. Well, all these other human beings are also, you know, the expression of the, you know, the, the divine manifestation and all this magnificent variety. I, I also think, you know, some of that is learned from... Uh, your environment. I mean, I grew up in Brooklyn in a very racially and ethnically mixed world when I was a little boy. So I had, you know, black friends and classmates and teammates and, you know, uh, Irish friends and Italian friends and Jewish friends. And so that kind of diversity was part of my life. Yeah, I think a lot of the tribalism now um, is, is um, it's, it's not so much red state and blue state, but it's urban areas and non-urban areas. Yeah. Because, you know, people who, who are in places like New York and L.A. and Chicago and Atlanta, you know, they're used to diversity. They they have, a you know, a more ethnically and racially diverse uh, experience of life every day. And they that becomes part of their, you know, frame of reference. Whereas people who grow up in, in homogeneous environments, in more isolated and, and um, uh, less uh, pluralistic, 
they don't they may feel threatened by diversity and and i think a big part of american tribalism right now is this um this resistance to the inevitable you know uh colorization <laughs> of the american population and the the growing diversity that that just it feels threatening to people who are not you know don't have much of that experience yeah and i mean it's you know it's definitely going back to what you're saying before looking forward it does feel like it might get worse before it gets better but it does seem that ultimately you know, it has to get better, at least in the sense that it becomes increasingly normal, the diversity of our culture, and it's only getting more diverse. And really, you know, the forces of globalization aren't going to stop anytime soon, as long as, ca you know, unfettered capitalism right. is is ruling the world. So, I mean, really, the ethic of, of, of diversity and the ethics surrounding diversity just has to, it just has to get more yeah. widespread, even in those areas where... Um, people are, you know, uh, at the moment, at least more homogenous. And, and it does. I mean, beneath all the craziness and the anger and the, the rage out there, if you look at people's attitudes over time, you know, look, back when I was growing up, my parents had a, a friends, an interracial couple, black a husband and a white wife. That was so rare. When they were together on the streets, even in Brooklyn, even in mixed, you know, even on the subways of New York, that people stared at them. That was so weird. It was, you know, but now, you know, there's interracial couples everywhere. They're on television. They're doing commercials. You know, uh, look at look at gay rights, for God's sake. You know, when I when I was in college, I had, you know, my best friend was gay and he was it was a. A terrible thing that people might find out yeah. about that. And now, you know, it's things change. People grow, and and they grow when they're exposed to people who are not like themselves. You know, it's like, you know, when Dick Cheney came out okay with gay marriage because his daughter was was gay. I mean, that was mind-boggling. Yeah. yeah. But but it, it, he was able to do that because someone he loved so deeply came out, you know, yeah. and that that's, that's what's going to happen. People, you know, get to know people who are not like themselves at work or, you know, wherever it is, and they change. Yeah, it's inevitable. And just to tie it back to the conversation, you know, we're having around spiritual practice, spiritual practice can help that process. Am I right? <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. Right. We got we got caught up in current events. But, <laughs> I loved it, though, because no. it's very relevant. But it is. But spiritual. Thanks for bringing it back, because that sensitivity, that um, openness, and you know what? Another part of it is when people. One of the benefits of spiritual practice, uh, you know, as I said earlier, we have a sanctuary of peace within ourselves. So you're less agitated, you have spiritual practice, you have a calmness inside, but you also have a sense of contentment. And when people realize that their happiness, their well-being, their sense of fulfillment depends on their inner state, not, you know, what they earn and 
you know, who they hate <laughs> and all the things outside of themselves, when they experience the difference between having a calm, content, open inner state and a closed, angry, uh, narrow, agitated state, um, that encourages them to, to maintain that. And they become less dependent on what's going on outside them for their happiness. And then they feel less threatened by the things they thought were depriving themselves of the happiness. So, you know, you're, you're more welcoming, you're more open when you're calm and content inside. Everybody knows that. Uh, if you're agitated and upset by something that happens at work, you come home, you're going to get angry at your kid more easily than if you're happy and content then you know the the child who irritates you instead is just your adorable baby who you want to you know be loving to and and it's that way with the rest of the world we're more kind we're more compassionate we're more open and welcoming when we're more content inside and and so in that respect, uh, you know, spiritual practice and that deep sense of kinship that, you know, you know, the Indian gesture namaste. Yeah. You know, the greeting namaste. Uh, when you go to India, it's just a routine. Everybody, you know, puts their palms together and bows and sometimes they'll say namaste. And it, it seems routine. But when you think about what it means... It means the divinity in me recognizes or, you know, celebrates or honors the divinity in you. It's recognizing that we are all one. We are all expressions of the same divine manifestation. And, and, and the spirit of that, whether you say namaste or not, but the recognition of that grows with your spiritual practice. And that you know, is that's one of the reasons I think it's so important for the state of the world that more and more people uh, develop a, 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 a strong, deep spiritual practice. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, one of the things I wanted to talk about, and, and maybe this is sort of um, uh, can be one of our closing topics. Um, you bring up the 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 subject of Pratipaksha Bhavana, which. Um, I just really liked the way that you discussed it because it's often interpreted as sort of like, you know, if you have this negative thought, then just cultivate the opposite. And you point out, you know, the very like just realistic observation that oftentimes that seems ridiculous, you know, and like, <laughs> how do I, if I hate someone, what does that even mean to cultivate love for that person? And you, and you have a really kind of nuanced way of discussing that. So I want I was just wanting you to talk a little bit about that because, you know, after we're, after we engage in spiritual practice, presumably we're going to have these resources of flexibility and, and Pratipaksha Bhavana seems to be something that we can then apply to that. Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Um, and I have to say, you know, a lot, I drew all the practices, and there are many, 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 you know, it's a whole inventory of spiritual practices to use at different times, in, you know, uh, according to your needs in the book. And I drew mainly from the yogic traditions, but also from other spiritual traditions. But I also drew from scientific research, because a lot of these 
practices we think of as spiritual are studied as you know psychological therapies or uh, physiological interventions, and we want to understand them. So there's brain science, there's psychology studies around all these things. So one of the things that comes out from the so you know the the, the world of positive psychology and this notion of positive thinking, it's not just a yogic technique. You know, people in the West have said, oh, no, you know, cognitive therapy, replace your negative thought patterns with more positive ones. But how you do it and what you replace the negative thought patterns with matters. And one of the things that's become evident is that the replacement of a negative thought with a positive one is more effective if the positive one is believable. Yeah. <laughs> because your your subconscious will pick up on it. And your subconscious will say, that's total bull. <laughs> I don't buy it for a second. You know, and you'll, you know, but you're trying to be positive and you're trying to love that person because you shouldn't hate and the hate is toxic and you're angry. So, you know, you, you, you shift to non-anger to I'm happy and it's all as well. And But if you don't really believe that, it's going to be a, a struggle to, re, you know, to replace that mood or that thought pattern. And your subconscious just, you know, it's going to re just reject it. So it's like someone gave me this analogy that I use in the book. You know, you, you say you're, tr you're, you're learning tennis and, and you say, uh, I'm not I'm no good at this. No, that's a bad way of thinking. I'm great and I'm going to be in Wilbon, Wimbledon next year. No, <laughs> you know. You're 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 not going to be in Wimbledon next year, and you're no you know no amount of faking it is going to make your subconscious really believe that. Yeah. But if you replace it with "I'm going to practice hard and be better at it all the time," that's believable, mm -hmm. and it encourages you know positive thinking, and it also encourages good behavior, you know effective behavior. Similarly, if if I'm looking at the television. And I see, you know, person who we won't name, and I get angry at politician A, <laughs> uh, and or something happens in the world, you know, like, and and you get angry, or just you know, you're within your family, something upsets you, and you're angry, or you're you, you can switch. But you need to switch in a, in a positive, in a believable way. So there's a problem. And instead of, ah, I hate this and I hate that person, you can't shift to, oh, the problem's gone. It's all fine. And I love that person. No, but you can shift to, this is where I need to pay attention to this. Mm-hmm. Instead of getting you know, caught up in worry and fear and all that. You say, okay, this this is a real problem. I have to attend to it, and this is what I'm going to do, and I can affect a better outcome. That is a positive replacement that can actually lead to 
you know, effective action, but, and it's less toxic than, you know, being caught up in fear and anxiety, but it's not fake. It's not fake. It's a believable replacement. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really like that because not only the, it it also seems to kind of invite a harnessing of, of also our imagination um, in the service of just seeing our own experience differently, not necessarily differently out of the scope of my current experience, but differently in actually recognizing, like you're saying, like modes of understanding a particular thought or feeling that are, you know, are valid and believable for me without actually being just kind of preposterous sort of, um, you know, projections. So I really, I really like that. And it seems to, uh, because just to connect it also back to spiritual practice, I mean, one of the benefits, it seems to me, especially in my experience, this has been very true in my own spiritual practice, my meditation practice, is that creativity is something that is, you know, really arises quite dramatically. I feel like a lot of embodied philosophy has arisen out of the creativity that I've experienced through my practice. And, and just being able to envision, you know, your experience differently, there's something about that that's very much about creativity and imagination. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, and I think that's one of the reasons um, I came to value in the early stages, my newfound meditation practice back in the, in the late 60s. I always wanted to write and I felt called to write. But I was a mess, and you know, I, I could, you know, I, I could barely sit still for ten minutes, let alone write. And one of the things that came about as a result of regular meditation practice was I had enough inner calm and presence to be able to write in a sustained way, and my I was more creative and and more consistently creative. And I know musicians and other people who also have that same thing and you see it you see it with athletes you see it with uh, entertainers and musicians they may not have what they call a spiritual practice but they have some routine that centers them that brings them to that inner calm so they're in touch with that sort of wellspring of creativity that's always within us uh you know that that every they all have their unusual routines yeah but but routines they are, you know, and, and, and they serve a similar purpose. Absolutely. All right. So let's, um, uh, I want to ask one question, which is regarding um, spiritual practice and those who are interested and in perhaps maybe they have one or it hasn't been kind of fully concretized or, um, you know, in your book, you obviously offer a lot of, of examples and a lot of options. So what would your advice be to those who are listening um, who want to, well, they're going to read your book, obviously, they're going to get that, you know, incredibly well priced um, ebook, <laughs> or they're going to order the physical book. I always prefer physical myself, but that's just yeah, my me own, too. Uh, predilection. Um, so, you know, what would your advice be? Like, what do you listen to in yourself when you are seeking out, you know, a coherent body of sadhana or a inventory of practices, as you uh, called it before? Yeah, thanks for mentioning that. There's two things I, re- I recommend, and you just put them in all in one sentence. Um, a regular sadhana, regular spiritual practice that, for me, the cornerstone of which is a meditation practice that takes you deep and into that inner silence, inner calmness, that long enough 
every day so it, it sticks with you for mm-hmm. some time. Um, and then to develop a, an inventory of practices to uh, surround a, me- a, a deep meditation or mindfulness practice where, you know, things you might do before and or after, mm-hmm. things to do during, you know, life. Um, I have chapters on the use of sacred space. I have chapters on the importance of relationships and in, in as spiritual practice. And then interventions, things to do at any given moment mm-hmm. when you need you know, a sort of spiritual break when you need to access that inner peace within you, even if you only have five minutes or two minutes. Um, and so developing an inventory is very useful. And there's tremendous, you know, a lot of uh, uh, suggestions in the book and guidelines for finding a, a, a core spiritual practice, a core meditation. I devote a lot of time to the nuances of meditation and the difference between meditation and mindfulness and the difference between certain types of meditation. And I always, I'm a big advocate of getting personal instructions if you can Mm -hmm. from a qualified teacher and don't settle for some, you know, magazine article or amateurish, uh, you know, meditation video. Um, but to get proper instruction, because a lot of what I find is an obstacle for people is they hear meditation's good. What's meditation? Oh, you quiet your mind. Okay. And they go home and they say, okay, I'm going to quiet my mind. And they try it. And of course they can't. And they say, well, I'm not cut out for this. I can't do this. And that they give up. And that's a common experience. And, And I always say to those people, if you saw people driving cars and you said, hey, I want to do that, and you'd never driven a car before, would you just get behind the wheel? <laughs> no, you would get instructions. Yeah. There are ways to meditate. There are instructions. And when you learn properly, it's not hard. It's yeah. a very, in fact, if it's hard, it's not a good practice. It should be easy. It should be effortless and natural. And learning how to do that requires some instruction. I should add that um, I created an audio recording of meditation instruction that uh, on my website, philipgoldberg.com, you'll see uh, if you want that recording, if you buy a copy of the book and let me know, I'll send you the recording. Um, So at least it's, you know, audio is a little easier than reading instructions, but there are instructions in my book as well. But uh, finding practices that work should also be a a kind of research project, an experimental project, and be objective about it. If something seems to be good, it comes well recommended, the the teachers are qualified, try it. But uh, don't just do it once. Do it for a while. See if it works. See if it makes a difference in your life. That's the test, you know, and and find what works for you. Find a constellation of practices that work for you. And always evaluate it, reevaluate it next year, the year after, 10 years from now. You change. Your needs may change. You might want to, you know, adjust your routine. Try new practices, you know, modify old practices. 
Um, there's no, no reason anything has to be stagnant, but take it seriously and get proper instructions, learn from reputable sources, and uh, give, give, give these things a chance to work yeah. in your life. Yeah, I'm really glad you're pointing these things out because I think I totally agree that I think what's sort of widely out there is this idea that, you know, meditation is really whatever you want it to be. I mean, going back to this, you know, hyper individualist, you know, there's a whole kind of um, effect, I think, that individualism has had on, you know, the spiritual marketplace, of course. And one of them is that, like, if it's my spiritual practice, then I just, you know, invent what works for me. And usually that doesn't work <laughs> because there are actual time tested, you know, forms of instruction that and, and also theories of the practice. You know, this is something Paul talks a lot about is that, you know, people don't under if they don't understand the theory of the practice, then it's very difficult to stay connected to the practice of the practice. And um, and, you know, and also to touch on what you said about the the receiving personal instruction from a teacher for me i think that i the the experience of receiving diksha or you know initiation into my practice it was such an event it was such a it was such a special moment that there's yeah. something about the kind of the way that forges a new neural pathway that then mm. then th then holds you to the sustaining kind of commitment to your practice that i think we don't give enough credence to this the power of the event of receiving your your practice rather than just like you know picking it up on a you know a blog post somewhere there's a lot of truth to that and uh, and and realistically not everybody's going to have that opportunity yeah totally or 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 value the spiritual life to the extent you do so that that really matters but i i fully agree with you and i and i i i know that um, you said something earlier I wanted to uh, comment on, and uh, I, I can't remember it. But the fact that um, the proper instruction and the – oh, the understanding, understanding uh, what you said with the theory of it, the knowledge part, knowing what meditation does – Knowing what, understanding what is actually happening when you meditate. Why do I feel better? What, why do my thoughts quiet down? Why, what's going on here? What's going on mentally, physically? When I experience this moment of pure silence, what is that? Mm hmm how does that fit into who I am and what is my place in the cosmos and the universe? Well, un putting it in that framework really does help. Understanding feeds the experience and then the experience makes the understanding come alive yeah. and they reinforce one another and, the, and they reinforce the motivation to continue because part of understanding uh, the the knowledge base that these practices come from is a vision of what can um, come from regular practice, a, a vision of growth and evolution of consciousness and spiritual development that is you know can can help motivate somebody. Oh, you feel calmer than you used to now that you do this practice. Well, can keep it up. There's even there's more to come. 
Uh, And here's what the sages have said about that and so forth. Uh, So I I fully agree with Paul, you know, about that. And I'm and I'm I'm sure he would agree with what I just said. Yeah, I'm sure he would, too. Um, So I've it's been so delightful, Phil, to talk to you about your latest book um, and a little bit about Yogananda. Your latest book is Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times. Those of you who are listening, please do pick up your digital copy. It's at an insanely low price of $1.99 on Phil's website. (laughs) And you can get it as gifts. Um, And then you can also get the physical uh, copy as well. I imagine it's available on Amazon and all the usual suspects. Yeah, yeah. the usual. Yeah. All right. And then your your website is philipgoldberg.com. Is there anything coming up, Phil, that you want to share with the listeners? Well... Um, I'm teaching a course at, uh, for Hindu University of America called uh, uh, How Hindu Dharma Transformed America. Uh, that's just started, so but you can still sign on. I have uh, other events coming up. I had to cancel a book tour <laughs> because of the pandemic, but I'm doing stuff like this online. And, you know, please go to my website. You, there's videos. There's uh, my tours will one day start up again. Go to Spirit Matters. Uh, yes, Spirit Matters, podcast, your great, wonderful podcast. Yeah, and enjoy the. You know, you'll find some uh, upliftment and refuge in the interviews there. They're all free. And uh, if you want to get in touch, you know, you can get in touch with me through the, my website. Get on my mailing list. I appreciate hearing from people. So, but thank you for the opportunity to uh, do that uh, self-promotion, Jacob. Absolutely. <laughs> well, it's been such a pleasure, Phil. Thanks so much for uh, for agreeing to the interview. Oh, it's my pleasure. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me.